What I'm learning in it is the absolute necessity of what we're doing right here today, and that's community. And I think if, if COVID and quarantine taught any of us anything is that we long for the interpersonal relationships of people because there's going to be times in your walk with God that you just can't see Him because the storm clouds of life keep you from being able to see the face of the Father. I heard a testimony from a sunflower farmer this week, a guy that has fields of sunflowers. I thought this was a cool testimony. He said that the sunflowers face the sun. They, they ought, you, you'll watch their, the, the heads on the sunflower run towards the sun, and, when the, and they'll, they'll turn. You can put a time-lapse photo on them, and they'll follow the sun all day long. And someone in the Q&A asked the sunflower farmer, what happens on a day when there's clouds and the sun doesn't come out? He said, what happens on that day is the sunflowers turn to face one another. Wow. And I thought... Man, that, is that not the body of Christ? There's going to be moments in my life where I just don't see Him properly. I'm not functioning the way I want to. And I'll turn to my friend. And I'll turn to my brother. And I'll turn to my sister. And in your eyes, I'll see Jesus. And in your life, I'll see the Holy Spirit. And if the church is necessary for anything, that's the anything. So I think in some ways we've got to stop thinking we're going to the soul-saving station. Because I came up, we talk about church as a soul-saving station. The Bible doesn't tell us that the assembly is a soul-saving station. It tells us that we, we don't forsake assembling together. Because there's, that word assembling is to build up. We don't forsake building up one another in the same space. That's not about let's come in here and try to win as many people to Jesus as we can. That's what we ought to be doing when we're outside is telling people about Jesus. We come in here is to complement what the Holy Spirit is saying and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of your brothers and sisters. So I want to honor Tabernacle of Hope. I want to honor what you're doing. I honor Pastor Jamie and Sister Gloria. I love you guys. I appreciate you so much. Um, I find this the highest honor on the planet. I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not trying to sound as if I'm, I, I mean it with all of my heart. I don't think there's a higher honor in the world than to be asked to get up and talk about Jesus. And particularly on a Sunday, that's pastor day. Pastors have Sundays. But for you to bring someone in and let them have your Sunday morning, I honor that. I want to respect that. I want to respect your time today. I don't want you to leave exhausted. I want you to leave excited about Jesus. I want you to leave at rest in Jesus. If you catch a nap during the sermon, I won't be offended. I'll tell you why I won't. I used to tell my church this all the time. I go, if this is the most rest you get the whole week is where you're sitting here and you start hearing about Jesus and you get drowsy, then I'll take it as the highest compliment that Jesus has put you at such rest that he puts you to sleep. All right? So... So I don't look at it like, look at that guy back there sleeping. He's bored. I just say, he is at such peace in the boat today that he's just dozed off. I say, Lord, just bless him, Jesus. Just, just bless his dreams right now in Jesus' name. Because if sleeping was a problem, that's, maybe that's why they went and woke Jesus up. They thought you shouldn't be sleeping in this boat. And he goes, no, sometimes sleep across the water is the best thing you can do. So I hope you don't go to sleep on me because I got some good stuff today, I think. I think there's some good stuff today to talk about Jesus. So, All right. If you have your Bibles today, I would love for you to meet me in the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to talk today uh, about... Uh, 
I want to talk today about disappointed with Jesus. And I know that's an unusual topic. It's an unusual title because your first response is, I'm not disappointed with Jesus. How could you be disappointed with Jesus? So let me explain. If you put your eyes on Paul White, I promise you, you'll be disappointed. Because the time's going to come, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to say something that hurts your feelings or that hits you the wrong way. You're going to watch my life if you watch it 24-7 and you're going to see something you disagree with, something you don't think I should do, some way I shouldn't act. But how many of you know that's not unique to me? That's all of us. You put your eyes on people, you're going to be disappointed. You put it on a politician, you're going to get disappointed. You put it on an athlete, you're going to get disappointed. You put it on a musician and an actor, you're going to get, you put it on anyone in your life, you're going to get disappointed because we disappoint people. It's not that we're disappointing, but we will disappoint. Now, what we always respond, this is the easy turn if you're teaching or preaching, is to go, the one person you put your eyes on never disappoint you is Jesus. And you say, Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus will never let you down. I want to challenge that just a little bit today. And this is the kind of message you don't open a weekend with, but you close with because you've built enough rapport to go, okay, I know this guy loves some Jesus, so he's not going to be dissing Jesus in this next statement. So stay with me because... The reality is, is that you very well can be disappointed with Jesus. You'll never be disappointed by Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't let you down in terms of his grace or his forgiveness. He doesn't fail to show up. He doesn't not do what he promised you he's going to do. He doesn't break covenant. He doesn't say one thing and do another thing. So you're not going to be disappointed by Jesus. But I do believe it's quite possible that you will be frequently disappointed with Jesus. And what I mean by that is because we build a version of Jesus that meets a certain set of our expectations. And then when we actually encounter Jesus, it doesn't meet all of the expectations that we have. And therefore, we might end up disappointed with Jesus. I will also say it's something that we'll never admit No, we're not going to walk around saying, boy, I'm really disappointed with Jesus. Oftentimes we won't even say it to him. But how many of you know he knows our heart? And so he knows those moments where we're a little disappointed with what we see. Now, I segue to this today because what we've talked about the last couple of sermons is what's God look like? And what does God look like? He looks like Jesus. He has always looked like Jesus. He looks like Jesus now. And in 10,000 years, God will still look like Jesus. He will not change. In God, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James said. So God is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then we talked about God in the Gospels. You want to see what God looks like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It'll be Jesus, but it'll be, uh, it'll be unusual. Sometimes it won't look like you thought it was going to look in Leviticus or what it sounded like in Exodus or what it looked like in Kings. And we walk through some of those stories to say Jesus was not trying to change God. Jesus was trying to change our mind about God to show us what God looked like. Because if we looked only at God through the lens of man's writings in the Old Testament, it's easy to be disappointed. And then you look at Jesus and go, okay, Jesus is actually what God looks like. But what if you have a mental picture of what you think Jesus should be and then you find out that Jesus is something else and bumps up against that theology, there's a chance that we're disappointed with Jesus. I want to show you a couple of those stories in the Gospels today. And I want to land on one in the Epistles today that try, and, and try to land this weekend in a place where I hope you walk out excited about Jesus, 
not disappointed with Jesus, but able to confront your disappointments. Because what we've tried to get you to do is confront and wrestle with your pictures of God that don't look like Jesus. Hopefully you've been elbowing those for a couple of days. Going, I don't know about that picture. I don't know about that picture. I don't know, about, I don't know if it looks like Jesus, but I'm going to work on it. That's good. Keep wrestling. You are he who contends with God. That's good news. You want to be on the mat with a bad picture of God all the time. And you want to land on Jesus. And that's a good place to land. And you want to watch God work. So it's okay to see those disappointments in the scripture and then work our way through them. And I want to show you the ultimate one in Matthew chapter 11. It's one of the Bible's most famous characters in, a, in a con- what will ultimately be a, confronta- a mental confrontation with his own image of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, I want to focus in for a moment on verse 3 where John says, Go ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Or are we waiting on someone else? And I want to remind you of something, and I don't, you don't have to turn there, but I want to remind you of something that happened in John 1.29. John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, is baptizing people into repentance in the River of Jordan. And he says, there's one coming after me who is preferred before me, whose shoe latchets I'm not worthy to unloose. I baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fan is in his hand. He'll thoroughly purge his floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then he looks up on the horizon and he sees the silhouette of a man coming towards him. And John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And no one had ever called Jesus Lamb. In fact, no man had ever been called Lamb in the Bible. And for every Jew standing there by that Jordan River that day, they knew what that meant. The Lamb of God is the atonement Lamb that takes sin out of our lives. To call a man a lamb means here comes the ultimate sacrifice. This is the one that's going to change the game. When he enters the scene, we are not going to need to kill other lambs any longer because the ultimate lamb's going to come. Behold the lamb of God. And then John actually breaks protocol. He doesn't say, behold the lamb of God that takes away your sin. He doesn't say, behold the lamb of God that takes away Israel's sin. He breaks the rules and says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which was an all-inclusive prophecy. So it's not just about you, and it's not just about your house, because how many of you remember that the Passover was about your house? You put the blood on the door of your house, put your kids in the house, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And God did that for Israel while Egypt died. And here comes a lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Egypt included. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The greatest proclamation of the gospel ever. And then when you get to Matthew 11, what happened? John the Baptist is convinced in John 1, I have found him, man. Behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And then in Matthew 11, he calls his disciples in and he goes, go ask Jesus if he's really the one or if we're supposed to look for someone else. And my question to you is, what happened to John the Baptist between the Jordan River and a prison cell? Well, here's a couple of things that happened. The first thing that happened is time. We're about two years from Jordan to the prison cell. And in that 24-month span, John the Baptist 
One of his last public sermons that we see in the Gospels is, I must decrease, he must increase. My ministry's got to disappear, his ministry's got to get bigger. But then John did the classic preacher thing. He preached one thing and did the other. John didn't like burn all of his business cards, take his shingle down, and stop paying the rent on his church. Instead, he ramped up his ministry. He didn't slow down preaching. He kept preaching. In fact, he started preaching harder and harder and harder. And he ends up in the palace of Philip telling him, you're married to, you're, you're sleeping with your brother's wife and this is adultery and it gets him thrown in prison. And the same John who said his ministry was supposed to get out of the way just keeps plowing forward and he ends up finding himself in prison. And all the while he watches Jesus and I think he thought he was getting a pit bull, but he watches Jesus and he feels a little more like a puppy dog. And he goes, all he's doing is setting necks on hills, giving sermons and, 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 and feeding people. And there's a miracle here or there. He's not doing exactly what it is that I said he was going to do. And what was it that John said he was going to do? There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And the winnowing fan is in his hand. And he's going to fan the flames of God's fire. And he's going to burn up all the chaff that's in your life. And yet when he looks at Jesus, he's talking to Samaritan women in John 4. And a nobleman in John 4. And a man at a hospital in John 5. And a woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. And all of these situations situations, miniature situations, no attacks against Caesar, no, no polemics against Rome, yeah. yet just a guy out on the shores of Galilee and John says, okay, I think I got it wrong. This isn't the one. Go ask him if he's the one. And you remember Jesus' response. We're going to work through Jesus' response in a moment. And at the end of that response, Jesus said, blessed is the man who's not offended in me. And here's another way of saying that. Blessed is the man who isn't disappointed with what he finds in me. And the reason Jesus says that is because he's acknowledging that John the Baptist is disappointed with the Jesus he has. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And two years later he goes, I don't know. Now before you cut John the Baptist down, I just want you to, let's relax a little bit and realize that we might have some theologies today that we're pretty solid on. Some theologies we can hang a lot of scriptures on. Some theologies we would be willing to die for. But if we glanced behind the curtain into the presence of God and saw that it wasn't exactly the way that we thought it was, our first response would not be, okay, I'm going to change my mind. Our first response would be disappointment in being wrong. Either disappointment in being wrong or disappointment in what's behind the curtain. And please, let's don't think we're beyond that. Oh, I wouldn't be disappointed. If God showed me the truth, I'd accept it. Mm. Mm. it's not in our nature. It's not in our nature that when he pulls the curtain back and immediately shows his truth, we automatically accept it. It's in our nature to defend what we believe even if it's wrong. That's why our first response when we get caught is to lie. Then we back off and think about how much the lie is going to cost us and then we step forward and admit that we were wrong. Why didn't we just admit it the moment we were caught? Because the first response is to move away from it. I can't be that wrong. Surely I'm not that wrong. Okay, I might be wrong. Yeah, you know what? I think I'm wrong. Okay, how am I going to fix the wrong? Notice we always back up and then we step towards it. It's in our nature. If you stub your toe in the night, you jump back from what stubbed your toe before you go fix what's in the way of stubbing your toe. You don't stub your 
your toe and then kick, 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 kick. You stub, move back. So what happens when we are confronted with our reality is we take a step back from our reality and we assess it. And John the Baptist is confronted with the fact that I said, here's the lamb, he's got a fan, he's going to baptize with fire, he's going to burn up everything. And what John saw with fire falling is a little bit what we talked about last night. When fire falls, stuff dies. Man, if fire's going to fall, we're going to have some stuff burn up. Behold the lamb. You people are in trouble. This is the guy that's going to bring fire to the world. You better get it straight. You better clean your lives up, man. You think I'm bad? Wait till you meet the one coming after me. That's how John preaches. You guys think I'm rough. I'm out here wearing, I'm wearing wild skims and drinking honey and eating locusts out in the wilderness. You wait till you see this guy. He is going to bring the fire. Two years later, where's the fire? I don't know if we found the right one or not. So when they ask Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm disappointed in John. Here's the thing. It's impossible for him to be disappointed with you because he doesn't expect anything out of you. See, he loves you because you're his. I love my kids because they're mine. I don't love my kids because they do stuff that makes me proud. I don't dislike my kids because they do things that disappoint or that hurt my feelings. I don't have expectations for them to live up to. We create chaos in our families when we put expectations on our children and on our spouse and on our parents and on our family to reach up to. We do that in our lives and then we do it in the church with our brothers and our sisters. They got to get everything right or we'll cut bait and move on and hurt them and kick them and knock them down or whatever we have to do because we're disappointed in people. But there's less room for disappointment whenever your love for them isn't about what they can do for you or what they provide for you. And so God isn't looking for you to do anything for Him. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need your attendance. His body, the body of Christ, will move on if you never give a penny. It'll move on if you never come to church. God will, move, God will do what He's going to do. And, and when we shift the responsibility from God onto the backs of people, we shift an expectation onto people that makes them feel as if they don't meet the expectation. Both my brother and my sister will be disappointed, but ultimately God will be disappointed. But the beauty of Matthew 11 is that John the Baptist, who was the great herald of Jesus, the great messenger in front of Jesus, has lost confidence in Jesus, and yet Jesus hasn't lost confidence in him. Because do you know where this story goes? After we stopped reading, you know what Jesus' next statement is? John the Baptist is the greatest prophet given among men. I don't have that kind of love for you. That if you bash and doubt and question me, my first response about you is, but let me tell you what a good guy this dude is. And you know why? And I don't know this dude, but... It doesn't matter if I know him. Human na- I know this guy a little bit, but human nature is, if I found out he's out here bashing me, human nature is, I'm going to take a step back, 
reassess our relationship, and it's doubtful I'm going to write a ringing endorsement. But I'm not Jesus. Jesus hears what John the Baptist says about him, and he goes, what did you guys go forth to see? A reed shaking in the wind? There's never been a man born among women, greater prophet than John the Baptist. He goes, you want to know why? Because he paved the way for me. Now, someone could have raised their hand in the crowd and go, yeah, but he's disappointed. You're not what he thought you were. doesn't matter. I never expected anything out of him. I don't expect anything out of you. Jesus doesn't expect anything out of you. He just loves being around you. Now, there's going to be some disappointment on my part in regards to him if I have a mentality of what I think he should be and then he doesn't live up to what I think he should be. But that's on my part. That's something I have to deal with. And that's something you have to deal with. And let's find out, maybe. okay, let's start here. Why is it that John feels the way that he feels? All right? What is it that's disappointing? Well, I told you he's looking for the fire to fall. I told you he's, Jesus is supposed to have the fan in his hand. Here's what John thought about himself, all right? I want to take you real quick to Malachi chapter 3 because I want to show you in the Old Testament, Malachi is one book back from Matthew. The last book of the Old Testament and the book right in front of Matthew in your Bible. And in Malachi chapter 3, I want to show you what John saw about his ministry. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The messenger is John the Baptist. The me is Jesus. Do you see this? I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant... In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Can we see that this is Jesus? All right. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. He's like a launderer's soap. He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will pur purify the sons of Levi. This, this is the priesthood. He will purge them as gold and as silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as it was in the days of old, as it was in the former years. I will come near you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Look at what John the Baptist expected to see. Focus in on verse 3. Man, when into verse 2, he's a refiner's fire. There's a launderer coming. He's going to purify silver. He's going to clean up the offering system. That's what John was looking for in Jesus. I also love it when you get down to verse 5. Here's how a lot of us treat these amens, man. You, you really want to hammer away at verse 5 and get people excited. I'm telling you, when Jesus comes near to judge, he's going to be a swift witness against sorcerers. We'll go, amen. He's going to, talk, he's going to be against adulterers. Amen. He's going to be against liars. Amen. He's going to be against exploiting wage earners. Amen. He's going to be against widows and orphans. Amen. He's going to be against those who turn away the alien, the stranger, the immigrant, and the refugee. Chirp, chirp. 
chirp, chirp. No, our amens get less and less. Because, and here's my point, because the longer you stare at Jesus, the longer you watch Him work, the more you get confronted with how much you disagree with the grace, the favor, and the love of God that drips from Jesus because it's less and less going to look like what you expect the King of glory to look like. We'll start out with a... This is John the Baptist. He's going to have fire. He's going to bring the fire. And then he watches Jesus work. And Jesus keeps going to the wrong places. He ends up in Syrophoenicia, a place full of Gentiles, no Jews. And when he gets there, he heals the, the woman's daughter. He gives her the children's bread. He ends up on a boat going to the land of the Gadarenes that sacrifice pigs and eat pork. And he's not supposed to be there, but he heals this young man who's naked and miserable and out of his mind. And Jesus has a lunch with a Gentile by the fire and gives him the glory and the favor and the forgiveness of God and the more you watch Jesus the more you go mm, I don't know I mean I'm okay with him getting on those Pharisees but I don't know about having prostitutes at his lunch table and I don't know about hanging out with the people on the wrong side of town and I don't know about what I feel about all that turn you out of the cheek carry the load two miles instead of one they give you they ask for your coat give them your cloak they sue him give them what you got I don't know about that Jesus I mean I don't think he fits in our mold and before you know it you found out that you're a little bit disappointed with Jesus Jesus. You're a little bit disappointed with the way things end up. So my question then is, how does Jesus answer John's query? John goes, are you the one or we look for somebody else to come? Let's go back to Matthew 11 because I want to make sure we see this again. I want to reread it because I want to show you Jesus' answer. In verse 4, Jesus says, go tell John the things which you hear and see. Here's what you've seen. Here's what you've heard. Verse 5, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell these things to John. Now, why does Jesus say go tell these things to John? John's heard these, this stuff's happening. It's not as if John's living under a rock somewhere for the last 24 months, doesn't know that Jesus has been healing the sick, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, and feeding the hungry. He hears all about it. In fact, all that stuff's what's disappointing him. Where's the deliverer? When we go start fighting Romans, when we go kill Caesar, when we go go get the temple back, you're supposed to show up suddenly in your temple. When are you gonna go sit on the throne? When are we gonna put an end to this religious bondage? When are you gonna do what I think you're here to do? Malachi three. I came to tell people about this. Don't embarrass me, Jesus. I'm your front man. The main apps let me down. Jesus goes, go tell him what you see and what you hear. And here's why I think Jesus says, go tell him what you see and what you hear. Because John's an Essen. He's one of the three categories of religious people in the New Testament, but the one that gets the least attention. Scribes, Pharisees, Essens. Essens have isolated themselves to the wilderness. They're sort of an isolationist group living in the wilderness, separate from the, from the Judaic temple system, and, and thus sort of prophetic against it. And John has put himself out in the wilderness, and one of the things that they do with their day is just study the Old Testament. They just study the Scriptures. So John's not confused about the Old Testament Scriptures. So when he hears the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, his mind would go back to Isaiah 35. I want to take you there. Go to Isaiah chapter 35 because Jesus is using Scripture to answer John's disappointment. Remember, John's a little worried that the Jesus he sees isn't the Jesus he prophesied of. 
Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. Say to those who are fearful hearted, say to those whose hearts are beginning to doubt. Sounds a little bit like John, doesn't it? Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Time out. Now we're cooking, right? God will come with a vengeance. This is the Jesus John was waiting on. This is the one going to baptize with fire, fan in his hand. This is the one that's going to bring God's wrath down. But watch what happens when the God of vengeance shows up. He will come and save you. The God of vengeance shows up on your side, not opposite your side. And watch what he does next. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing and water shall burst forth in the wilderness. This is exactly what Jesus told John he was doing. He said, you go tell John that blind people see, lame people walk, deaf people hear, dumb people can speak and pour out the gospel preached to him. John knows his Bible. When he hears that, he'll go find Isaiah 35 and he'll realize that this is the vengeance of God. Yes. The fan is in my hand. And you know what I'm purging? Blindness. Yes. Deafness. Dumbness. Yes. Brokenness. I'm mad at it. I'm angry at evil. And I'm angry at sin. And I'm angry at what hurts my people. And I'm showing up to save them. And I'm on a war path against the powers of hell and darkness that has held my people in bondage. Don't be disappointed. The only way you should be disappointed is if you expected me to go after the people you're after. And you expected me to step on the people you want to step on. And you expected me to start killing people and giving cancer and knocking people out and knocking people over and taking their wealth and taking their house and burning down their crops. If that's what you're looking for, get ready to be disappointed. But I am the walking, talking vengeance of God. And that vengeance falls on every blindness, on every dumbness, on every deafness, on every bondage, on every demon. It's why I keep showing up in the Gadarenes. And it's why I go to Syrophoenicia. And it's why I'm talking to Samaritans. Because they're in bondage and they're under the boot of the enemy. And I have come to set the captives free. And I got a feeling when they came back to John and they said all he said was blind people see, deaf people hear, dumb people talk, lame people walk. John went, I get it. I get it. That's on me. He's the one. See, I was disappointed with Jesus because I expected him to be the Jesus that I want him to be. To dislike the people I dislike. To do what I wish he would do. But I want to line me up with what Jesus is. I want to stop seeing the wrath of God. We've got to change the narrative in the church on the wrath of God. And you know what? We don't have to change it because we dislike Scripture and we're trying to be outside the Bible. We've got to change it because our ideas were never in the Bible. If we want to get true to the Word, when the vengeance of God shows up, He saves His people. And how does He do it? He takes their bondages. You see, we're not just talking about physical blindness. We're talking about the spiritual blindness that has warped us because our eyes have been shielded over by the enemy. Jesus comes and says, I'm sick of that. And you know where that that gets perpetrated? Here first. More damage is done to blind God's children from the pulpits of the so-called church than ever happens through the voice of the enemy. 
Because through the church, we'll tack scriptures onto it and people blindly believe it. Because we ain't studying for ourselves. I mean, who's got that kind of time? I mean, I'm not going to go dig into the word and figure out if this is true. Brother so-and-so said it. Bless God, brother so-and-so is a man of God. Man of God says it, I'll buy it. I'll do it. Doesn't matter if it's in the word or not. If it's in the word, that's even better. If it's not in the word, well, brother so-and-so wouldn't have said it if he hadn't heard from God. I went into a place one time, preached to preached a liberating message of grace and someone come up to me after and said, well, I don't know, brother so-and-so hadn't had that revelation yet, so I'm not sure about it. (laughs) Brother so-and-so hasn't had that revelation yet. We just talked about Jesus. Maybe if brother so-and-so ain't had a revelation of Jesus, it's time to change your so-and-so. I mean, it's Jesus. We're not touting like the eight rules of the denomination. We're not talking about the what, what should hang on the church wall. We're talking about Jesus, like the person you signed up to follow. The one that died on Calvary for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have life. You could have more abundant. How can anybody get in between you and Jesus? It's Jesus. That's, but I'm not cutting us down. We're John the Baptist. Doing the best we can do. But we have expectations. Just we can admit they're wrong. I've been wrong about Jesus. I've been wrong about Jesus a lot. I'm probably still wrong about Jesus. And I'm okay with that because here's a couple things I want to introduce you to. What happens to John between where he is and where he goes? A little thing happens to John called doubt. Now we're scared to death of doubt in the church. We shouldn't be. Doubt is the best friend of faith. I don't trust a faith that hasn't wrestled with doubt. If your faith hasn't wrestled with doubt, you have a flimsy faith. It's built off of someone else's revelation. So-and-so told you something and you went, all right, I believe that. You haven't wrestled with it because you're scared to wrestle with it. Because if you wrestle with it, you get confronted with, well, don't you believe it? Why are you asking? Why are you doubting? Doubt's not bad. Doubt's good. Let me slow down right here and say this a, a better way. You got a few things you wonder about. Embrace the wonder. Take it to the Father. That's what wrestling is. Yeah. You go, I'm not sure about this, God. He goes, That's okay. Let's talk. And you wrestle with him and you get done and you go, I'm still not sure about it. And he goes, That's all right. You being sure about it's not your salvation. I'm your savior. You and I are on a journey. How do you know what you believe if you haven't doubted what you believe? How confident can you, believe, can you be in your faith if it's never encountered doubt? So when our kids ask hard questions, let's just try to answer them. If we don't know the answer, say, I don't know. And then don't just leave it there. Go wrestle with the Lord over it. And come back and wrestle with your hand in hand with your kid and go, I don't know about that. My salvation's not built on it, but let's get to the bottom of it together. See, there's a difference in doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is, I have confronted it, I don't believe it. Doubt is I have confronted it and I'm not sure about all of it, but that's okay because God is unsearchable and I don't have to know everything, but I'm trusting that he has my best interest in mind. Why? Because God is love. God is good. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My faith is not built on this story or that history or that idea. My faith is built on the man Christ Jesus. Anything else, I might be disappointed. Doubt's okay. 
So Jesus doesn't condemn John for his doubt. He just takes him back to the scripture and says, look at what the scripture says. Go expect that. If you expect that, you'll not be disappointed anymore. Jesus closes by saying, blessed is the man who's not offended in me. Another way of saying, blessed is the man who isn't disappointed. So there's a blessing on the other side of dropping your disappointments. Once you get rid of your disappointments, you go, okay, what I'm really looking for is the Jesus of the word. Then there's a blessing on the other side of that. All right, can I show you another one? I, I promise we won't take as much time with the next one as we did with John. There's a lot. I drug you back into the Old Testament a couple times in the John one. Um, if you're like me, you start talking about Jesus, you get excited, you forget what time it is. That's me sometimes, but you're, you're sitting there and I'm up here. So I'm, I'm going to honor the fact that you're, you don't know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. So I'm, you're listening and that's harder. All right. So I try to honor that and, and, and bring you along. I want to give you one more from the gospel of Luke. I want to show you a couple of people, boots on the ground, people who were disappointed with Jesus. And I don't want to show you why they were disappointed with Jesus. I'll meet you in Luke chapter 24. This is, this is another disappointment. In Luke chapter 24, another disappointment. This one happens on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has just come out of the tomb. And in Luke chapter 24, there are two disciples traveling the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is about a seven-mile journey, and they're traveling on foot. Um, we don't know who they are. We do know that one of them is named Cleopas. The other one is never named neither by name or by gender, which is kind of a biblical way of saying they were husband and wife. And so it's very possible that this is Cleopas and his wife. I like to think this is a replay of the Adam and Eve story because Adam and Eve had scales fall off of their eyes and they saw that they were naked. And this couple is about to have scales fall off of their eyes and they're going to see Jesus clearly. And so I like to imagine that in a new creation, Adam and Eve get a redemption story. And Adam and Eve are our first instance in the Bible of disappointment and doubt. Remember, Eve hears about maybe God's got more for me and she's a little disappointed and she goes about it her way. And we get a new idea of disappointment in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 17. He said to the two, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you are sad? And one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Did you see that first sentence? Look at the word but. Look at the conjunction. But is the, the root of a rebuttal. What have they said? We've been following this man, Jesus. He was a prophet. He was mighty. He was mighty in word and God, in word before God and all the people. The chief priest delivered him and killed him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They're disappointed because they thought they were following Israel's redeemer. And now that he's dead, they're quite sure he's not Israel's redeemer. Now, what, this one we could say, well, the reason they're disappointed is that he's dead and that if he 
hadn't died, he might have been Israel's redeemer. But I want you to dig behind the onion just a little bit, peel the layer back a little bit and realize what just happened. They said, here was the man that we thought was the one. We heard about him from John the Baptist. We followed him for three years. And then he died. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And what they didn't realize was that by going to the cross, he was going to redeem everyone. So their disappointment was because they had a theological idea that was not exactly God's theological idea. And here's what I'd like to say about that. You've probably got ideas about heaven and hell and the Holy Ghost and the end of time and the return of Christ and judgment. And you've probably got ideas about salvation and faith and justification, and all kinds of theological terms. And there's a really good chance that every single thing you believe in exists, but not at all like you think it does. Are you okay with that? You ought to be, because if you're not, then you better be dead on right. And how are you going to find that out? You're not going to until you get there, and then you're going to have some time standing in front of God really disappointed. Well, I thought I was right about all this. I'm not sure I want to be here. I'm not really sure this is where I want to end up. Not if this is the way it's got to be. Well, I know better and you know better. And the reality is, is we've all got theological ideas. We don't know if they're right, but we don't dare hang our hat on being right. At least I hope not. So why do we act like that? We don't have to be right about it. I don't have to be right about heaven, right about hell, right about who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down. I don't have to be right about... All I really need to be right about is Jesus. Just be right about, just watch Jesus. Follow Jesus. I'm not a follower of right theology. I'm not a follower of good doctrine. What I thought was good doctrine 10 years ago, I wouldn't walk across the street for now. What I think is good doctrine today probably seemed pretty immature in a year from now. And go, man, you thought you had something a year ago. Remember when you went up to Westminster to preach, you thought you really had a, something mature, and then you, you grow into something different. Praise God! That's listening to the Holy Spirit going, we've been wrestling for 12 months, and I'm landing in a different spot, and that's okay, but it's still Jesus. Still spotlighting Jesus and receiving Jesus. Those on the road to Emmaus were disappointed because the Jesus they were following, they thought was going to redeem Israel. And by the word redeem, they meant deliver. And the word redeem, we've spiritualized it and made a spiritual term. means redeem us from our sins because that's a New Testament idea. But that's not the idea that Israel used when they used the word redeem. Because for them, redemption was to be purchased out of whatever boot they were under. And whose boot was on their neck? Rome. And all they're waiting for is their Savior. And when they say their Savior, you know what they don't mean? Save us from our sins. And do you know why? Because they're God's people. They don't think they have any. So what do we need redemption from? Caesar. We need redeemed from the system. We want the next David. We want the next Judas the Hammer Maccabees. See, we Christians don't know anything about that because we don't read the Apocrypha. But those books that squeezed into the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, Israel had a little hero guy called Judah Maccabees. They nicknamed him the Hammer because he overcame the oppressive rule of the, of the Assyrians. And they wanted another one. And their template for a savior was a hammer. Smash the rock to pieces. We thought Jesus was the one, but alas... He's dead. 
not realizing that by dying, Jesus redeems everything. Because only by dying can he raise up in newness of life and ascend to sit at the right hand of his Father. That's a happy disappointment. I'm disappointed I didn't get the Jesus I wanted. Oh, but you got the Jesus you needed. You hear me? You didn't get the Jesus you wanted, you get the Jesus you needed. You didn't get the Jesus you wanted, you get the Jesus she needed. Oh, you didn't get the Jesus you wanted, you get the Jesus they needed. Oh, you didn't get the Jesus you expected, you get the Jesus they've been waiting for. If we can grab that, we'll lower. We won't lower our expectations from Jesus. We'll raise expectations from Jesus. We'll lower our judgments against man. We'll lower our expectations from man. We'll receive people for what they are. Fallen, broken, hurting, wounded, dying, blind, lame, deaf, dumb. And we'll see the vengeance of God as falling against whatever ails them. Not what they've been doing. But against what ails them. Because what ails them, He has fought and defeated at Calvary. All things being put under His feet. That's the Jesus you signed up to serve. That's the Jesus we got to preach again. That's the Jesus that caused you to walk out of the church and go, man, I'm coming back because if I can hear about that Jesus, that's worth whatever it takes. I want to, he- I want to see that. I want to hear that. I want to live for that. I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to lay down my life for that. It's worth laying down my life for. Because it would be honorable to count myself worthy to lay my life down for a man who'd lay his life down for me. I'm not going to defend my life to the death. I'm going to lay my life down to the death because that was my Jesus. Let me give you one more. Not a story, just a passage. One of the most famous gospel passages in the epistles. And it's from the lips of one of my favorite New Testament characters, the Apostle Paul. Converted as Saul of Tarsus persecutor of Christians, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and says, who are you, Lord? What a question. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Notice, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting the church. But when you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. Let me give you some advice. You better watch what you say about about churches and church people. You've got a church down the street, down the road, you want to make fun of their doctrine, say they're not really saved, you better be careful. You're talking about another man's wife. Christ is the husband. They are the bride. You better watch your mouth talking about another man's bride. You go, yeah, but their doctrine's wrong. You better be careful. You don't get to tell another man's wife how she dresses, how she acts, how she moves. You better keep your attention on your own spouse. That's pretty darn good advice across the board. That's not just good church advice. That's like good living advice. You live in that zone, you cause a lot of hell to cease. A lot of chaos is born because we got everybody figured out. How they ought to live, how they ought to act, how they ought to dress, how they ought to walk, what they ought to watch, what they ought to do, what they get to drink, what they got to do, what they can't. We, we got it all figured out. Another man's wife. Let him take care of his wife. And I got news for you. Whether she's Ephesus or Laodicea, or Philadelphia, or Smyrna, or Thyatira, and she got problems up and down, and Jesus is going, I got somewhat against you. In all seven churches, he's standing in the middle of the seven candlesticks because you know where he stands in a church he's bothered with? Right in the middle of the church because you don't leave the spouse you're bothered with. Man, that's another sermon. I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs) 
That was all free. I don't know. That's, that's a free and unsolicited, right? Where'd that come out? Romans chapter one. Let me give you this and we're going to close. All right. Romans chapter one. You enjoying yourself today? <laughs> Romans chapter one, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I wish we would read 17 more often. We all love Romans 1.16. We don't tack on 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Am I in a safe space? I can tell you that, that the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And therefore, when you look at a word in the English, sometimes it just ain't the word that it meant 2,000 years ago in the Greek. You okay with me saying that? All right. The word ashamed is a terrible translation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's closer in the Greek to the word disappointed. I am not disappointed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would Paul say that? Because the church was growing disappointed with the gospel of Jesus. We're in the first generation of Christians and they're already growing disappointed with the gospel of Jesus because they even had expectations of what the kingdom was supposed to look like. Quick acceleration. We're always fast. You notice that? We always want stuff to be really fast. Even our eschatologies about how it's all going to end is all like, it's all going to be over like that. Just boom. God just going to come in here and just boom everything. Or it's going to start really fast and then go kind of slow for a little bit. And then boom, God goes fast again. And we don't, it's like, it's like Jesus never even talked to us. And, but he warned us. He goes, the kingdom's like a, like a man that puts the seed in the ground and lets it grow. And then generations later, birds get to make nests in its tree. I mean, it just don't happen overnight. Yes. Guess what that means? That means you aren't going to be alive to see the maturation of the kingdom. That's what he was telling his disciples. Because the tree's got to get big enough for all the fowls of the air. So the kingdom's a slow developer, man. So the church starts getting disappointed. And Paul writes to the church at Rome and he goes, I'm not disappointed with the gospel of Jesus Christ because here's what I've learned about the gospel. It's the power of God to save you internally, not the power of God to save you externally. You know why you're disappointed in the gospel? Because you think Caesar's supposed to die. Because you think the other countries are supposed to line up. Because you think there's supposed to be a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot. So you're disappointed with the gospel because it didn't make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Didn't take away your stuff. Didn't give you everything prosperity gospel told you it would. Didn't clean up all that and do all that. Instead, the gospel is the power of God to show you God's righteousness and implant it in you from faith to faith to faith to faith. Not all the time, not all at once, but from faith to faith to faith to faith that the gospel goes to work and you meet it you meet it with your faith and as you meet it with your faith righteousness springs forth faith to faith means you're not done yet so stop judging people it's faith to faith it's not faith it's faith to faith righteousness is revealed from faith to faith so from faith to faith righteousness is revealed what happens the next time righteousness is revealed what happens the next time Righteousness is revealed. We expect all along a journey, boom, salvation. And so we're disappointed. And we're disappointed in people. They came down there. They ain't changed a bit. That guy's been there five years. He's doing stuff. He's, 
Because we're disappointed that the gospel doesn't work as fast as we want it to. And Paul goes, I am not disappointed with the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save men's souls and make them righteous. And how does it go to work? From faith to faith to faith to faith and a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow and a little bit the next day and we're in this for the long haul man i'm in here with you we're going to walk it out you're going to fall down you're going to make mistakes you're going to mess up we're on a switchback we're going to pass the same tree i'm going to wonder if you're learning anything at all and if you get disappointed it'll simply be because god's not working as fast as you want him to let me tell you how dangerous that is here's what happens especially in us churches that come from pentecostal charismatic backgrounds or holiness backgrounds and that's how i was raised those are the churches i come up in and we demanded that people change and the change would start on the outside you accept jesus and start on the outside clean up that outside as a reflection here's how we'd say it as a reflection of the inside and people clean up the outside and then we would see stuff coming out of them and we'd get frustrated and the biggest reason we put clothing restrictions and hair restrictions and movie restrictions and diet restrictions on people is because we wanted to force an external change rather than allowing an internal change to come out from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit moves so slow for most of us that we try to help Him out by putting a bunch of rules on people. The Holy Spirit's going to do this way too slowly. I'm not got that kind of patience. What's going to happen in Westminster if they look down here at this church and they see this slow change out of people, they're going to think we don't take sin serious. And so we got to clean this baby up so that the outsiders look in and go, now those are the people of God. Look how they dress. Look how they act. Look how they talk. Look how they walk. And yet you can come in and never find Jesus. You just find a bunch of people talking about holiness and theology and know Jesus. You go, well, how do you know you don't find Jesus? Because wherever you find Jesus, there's going to be a pimp and a prostitute and a stranger and a widow and an outcast and cancer victims and the blind and the miserable and the poor and the naked and the brokenhearted and the drunk and the drug addict. And if they're not there, there's probably not a lot of spotlight on Jesus. The church is full of broken people. Find me a church not full of broken people and I'll show you a church that's lost sight of Jesus. We all cut Laodicea down. I just posted a sermon on our site today, the seven churches, Laodicea. We've been doing the seven churches in our monthly meeting in Georgia. We do a monthly meeting, by the way, one Sunday a month. And Laodicea is the famous, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door and come in, I'll sit with him, him with me. And we just cut Laodicea. We use that as a salvation verse. Let Jesus come into your heart. And yet, Jesus is standing in the midst of Laodicea. They're his church. He ain't outside trying to get in. You know what the door open bit's about? It's Jesus saying, there's more. There's an intimacy that you and I could have if you cared more about intimacy than you did thinking that you are rich, well-increased in goods and have need of nothing. If you realized that you were poor, miserable, blind, and naked, you and I could have fellowship all the time. What if we came in realizing we were the poor, we were the blind, we were the naked, we were the lame, and we said, Jesus get mad at all my stuff. Get mad at that blindness. Get mad at that lameness. Get mad at that deafness today. Take out your vengeance. Pour your fire on the evil that is attacking me. Pour your fire on the problem that is, that is plaguing me. And in that, you and I will eat bread and drink wine. Aren't you glad you follow Jesus? You don't know what God looks like till you look at Jesus. But when you look at Jesus, you can't look away. You get your eyes on Jesus, you go, that's the God I've been looking for. That's the Jesus I've been looking for. 
Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus shows what it would look like for God to walk the earth. And a resurrected Jesus shows what it will look like for his people to walk the earth. And you're his people. Father, I thank you today. What a great privilege. I count myself today, Father, the luckiest man in the world to get to stand on the platform and talk about Jesus and to have people be so receptive. I hope we haven't worn them out. It would be against your heart to wear them out. It would be against your heart to abuse their time. But I think it would be your heart to hug them, to love them where they are, to show them the face of Jesus, and to send them on their way knowing that Christ in them is the true hope of glory. And glory is goodness. Christ in them is the hope and the promise of a good God. Let that be our testimony. Bless the tabernacle of hope. Bless my friends, Jamie and Gloria. I believe in them. I believe that wherever the spotlight shines on Jesus, the Holy Spirit stands at attention. Great things happen in an environment where Jesus is at the center. In Jesus' name, amen.